Welcome to the World We Got This podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues we face in the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the scale of the challenge and ask them what society and each of us as individuals can do to help solve it. Hello and welcome to this episode of Well We Got This in Conversation. You're about to listen to a conversation between PhD student Lucy Delaville and Andreas Bass, reader in geomorphology in the Department of Geography. Lucy's research looks at alien geomorphology, in particular how wind patterns are shaping the surface of Mars. She does this by studying satellite imagery, which is apparently really good up in space, to monitor ripples of dunes. Lucy first discovered a love of sand dunes during her undergraduate degree. She went on to do a master's in climate change with the Department of Geography at King's. Her dissertation thesis was turned into an article for Nature Climate Change with the support of her supervisor, Andreas Bass. The article focuses on wind patterns altered by climate change and how they're changing the behaviour of sand dunes around the world to the point where entire villages could become buried under sand. In this episode, Lucy talks about her academic journey from undergrad right up to PhD, and more about her interests in sand dunes, climate change, and Mars. Let's get on to what she has to say. So welcome, Lucy. It's uh, great to have this opportunity to chat with you about your journey in academia so far. And I think our listeners would perhaps be first interested to get a bit of a background of your sort of education, where you started getting interested in planetary science, if you like, your undergraduate degree background and how that sort of developed. Sure. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So my undergrad, I did it in Earth Sciences at Trinity College Dublin in Ireland. So it was mostly Earth-focused, but in my third year, I did take this uh, module called Deserts of the Solar System, which sort of piqued my interest because I didn't think there would be sand dunes or deserts on other planets. So from that module, I got really excited about Mars, mostly, because we focused on Mars. And that's why I decided to do my dissertation on sand dunes on Mars and interaction with ice. Because Mars is sort of tilted, kind of like Earth, sort of seasons, and the poles there's ice, and it interacts with the sand from sand dunes. So that's sort of how I started my, I guess, academic interest in uh, in sand dunes and other wind-related processes, because the wind blows and it moves the sand around. So then, yeah, I guess that's uh, sort of related to my PhD now, which is, uh, again, sand dunes on Mars. So this project that you did in uh, Ireland, what was the role of your supervisor in developing that idea? And sort of how closely did you work with, with your supervisor at that time? How we did it was uh, in third year, we sort of had this module where we were introducing how to write a dissertation. And then each lecturer from our cohort will have a different topics. And one of the topics was about just sand dunes on Mars. And as I previously did this module on deserts of solar system, I was already interested in it. So I was like, okay, I really want to do this topic. So the lecturer was Mary Burke, and she's pretty uh, prominent in her research, Aeolian research in either Mars or Earth, mostly Mars. And she she sort of, um, I guess, helped tailor the topic more. So I ended up studying dark dune spots, which is the sort of black spots that you see um, on sand dunes towards the end of winter, uh, early spring, because the sand dunes are first covered in ice. 
But then as the ice sublimates, there's more solar insulation, like more sun in general. So just the base of the ice would burst, not melt, but sublimate to the gas phase, which increases the pressure. And then as the ice cracks and the pressure is released, some of the sand comes out and then are deposited into spots on top of the dunes. So she really helped me, I guess, understand that process and really pushed me to study across both hemispheres, like those dark dune spots, just to sort of know how much of this process is happening on Mars. Because this is a process that doesn't exist on Earth, so it's still quite new in understanding how it works and how much of it is happening. So that, that research is already quite novel and original? It was. In some ways, it's a bit limited because the images we're using is high-rise, which are very high-resolution images of the surface of Mars. So it really depends on the scientific merit of where those images are taken on the surface of Mars. So there is a limitation there of where you can find those darkened spots because you need to have the available data. But also it's a bit problematic because over time, the whole dune surface would have the ice sublimate, like it disappears. So it's kind of difficult to know how much sand is moved through the geyser-like process on top of the dune, and then the ice disappears. So it's, um, I think if a, a rover could take images of it on the surface, it would be more interesting than like just seeing it from a satellite um, observation. Excellent. So, so then you finished that undergraduate degree, and then I assume you started looking around for master's programs. How did you uh, come to King's? How did that come about? Well, it's uh, again, during my undergrad, I took this other module, which was environmental change. And it was mostly focused on climate change. And that's when I really was a bit concerned of the whole climate change uh, effect that's happening now. And so when I was looking for masters, I was debating whether I want to do planetary science or a climate change masters. And I ended up choosing the climate change masters at King's, which brought me here. And... That's, uh, that's the main reason is like, I really want to focus more on like how climate change impacts different processes from like natural processes, just like wind or oceans, but also society. I came from a mostly scientific background. So I did like that there was some more, I would say human geography or like societal issues that were brought up during the master's. So it was sort of a different perspective than what I did in my undergrad, which is really just scientific. So that was interesting to seeing how this process does like climate change affects everyone and everywhere. <laughs> Maybe not the same variation of uh, the inten intensity of the effects is not the same everywhere, but it does in fact affect everyone. But it also affects sentience, which is uh, what I ended up doing for my master's dissertation. Yeah, so, so tell us a bit more about how you came to look into that particular topic. Well, doing the climate change master's, I really want to focus on that topic for dissertation. But also still had this love for Sanjins from my previous uh, dissertation. So I was like, oh, I would like to somehow uh, put those two ideas together. And I've just done this module with you on the monitoring environmental change, where I sort of built this uh, anemometer, which is an instrument that measures wind direction and speed. And I've just finished this small project and really thought like, oh, wind is actually really interesting as well. That's how I had those three ideas, the climate change, the wind, and the sand dunes. I was like, okay, maybe I could be, I'll be able to put all those three topics together into a dissertation. And so as you were working on your dissertation, did you at that point already think about turning it into a paper or, or putting, you know, putting it out, out there somehow, whatever you were doing? Well, <laughs> I wasn't thinking about turning to a paper until you mentioned, oh, this is a very interesting idea. We should publish it. I was like, oh, okay, that sounds good. I guess uh, we might as well try it. 
And uh, so after I submitted the dissertation, it was two years ago. That's how we decided to really evolve the dissertation into a paper, which did take well two years now uh, since the paper is published uh, recently in Nature Common Change, which is pretty exciting for us. Yeah, I, I, it took some time, but what is your sort of experience from that now? If you look back at the two years that it took to get there, what are there any particular things that stand out or that surprised you in pursuing this publication? In some ways, is when you do a research, you're so involved in the topic that you sort of think that everyone else will understand your research. So once we've sort of wrote a manuscript and sent it to the reviewers, some of the reviewers' comments sort of put us off. We're like, oh. I didn't think you'll interpret our words in that way, which meant that we really had to tailor like how we wrote the process of like looking to the wind uh, regime from climate models and to be able to predict the movement of sun dunes in the future. So we had to be a best clear on how to really bring the, the, the center point of the, the paper to everyone to understand it. So I think it's, yeah, it's mostly the, the, the reviewing process because you have to it's a lot of back and forth uh, and we, sometimes you have to redo some analysis. So it does take a bit of time. So I think overall it took six months since we first submitted the, the paper to it being published. So it is a long process, but you do learn a lot over time and, and it does improve your paper overall, having those comments from the reviewers. So can you tell the audience a bit about the findings and, and what the study actually has found? So we took wind predictions for the future until the end of the century from climate models that were recently published, so the latest climate models. And we used those wind regimes for future to predict the dune migration and dune speed, so like how fast they go, their direction of migration, and also their shape, because the wind, depending on, I'll say, the interactions of different winds, like from uh, directions, you could have different shapes of dunes. So the bark and dune is the simplest dune, I'd say, because it's formed with one wind, one wind direction. But then you have, for example, linear dunes, where it's like two winds that are coming oblique uh, from oblique directions and they form the linear dunes, as it says it's linear. So the paper, we sort of looked at the global scale of all the desert regions. We first looked at all the dunes that were in those regions to sort of understand what types there were in those regions and also what direction. Because if we knew where the dunes were and what direction they were going, now we'll be able to sort of predict how those will change in the future. So we found that there are some dunes in Africa mostly, where there's, for example, villages in the middle of two linear dunes. But we've we've seen that those actually linear dunes will shift direction, which means they'll probably overtake mm -hmm. those villages or those settlements which is a big issue, but also there's a lot of mitigating measures that are put in place to protect rail tracks or roads. Those are quite expensive, but if the wind direction changes and the dunes also change with that wind direction, it will probably overtake those rail tracks or roads. There is a lot of potential threats there for like managing the sand dunes. But we've also seen in some areas, for example, the Bodele Depression in Chad, where there's the barkens are moving very quickly, but in our predictions, we see that those barkens will move even quicker. And that area is very prominent for the dust emission, because the, as the dune moves, there's also some dust are pushed into the atmosphere, which means that if the dunes move faster, there'll be more dust emissions at that area, which would impact other processes like in the atmosphere, but also the oceans. We haven't really gone too much in detail into this because we're mostly focused on sun dunes, but it is an impact that we could see. 
And the third sort of impact we've seen with the changing sand dunes is um, in Australia. Most of the sand dunes are mostly fixed with vegetation and their linear dunes quite long. But we've seen that there will be maybe just one wind direction instead of two, which means that those linear dunes are probably going to break up into barking dunes, which means they'll become more active, which might affect all the local communities if they have pasture lands that might be more like desertified or there'll be a desertification process that happens there. Like those are some key regions, but similar places, sand dunes are going to move less or they're not going to change direction. So it's quite varied, the, the predictions that we have. It really depends on the region that we look into. Yeah, I was going to say, is there any good news from the, the study? <laughs> well, one of the good news is uh, North America. The dunes are not really going to activate because some people thought they might start moving again from the like vegetation will like, recede or decrease, but it doesn't seem that's going to be a problem. And then there's some other areas in China where they've had a lot of problems with like the sand. Uh, like too much having just too much windblown sand but there actually we see that there'll be a decrease in the sand transport uh, rates i mean there's other smaller regions obviously like the mediterranean region so there'll be less sand as well like sand moving did you have a break then also between doing a master's program and, and starting a phd because when you finished your master's were you then straight away thinking about continuing academia with a, a phd or did you have any other ideas of what to do I was always interested in doing a PhD, so I did take a few months between the master's submitting the dissertation and actually starting a PhD. So during that time, several, I'll say six months, I was applying to PhDs to figure out where, where I wanted to go. But also it's, uh, well, yeah, I think I was mostly focused on PhDs. I sort of always knew I wanted to do research because I always love research and finding new things and learning new topics and applying it to, I guess, discover yeah, new, new research, uh, discover new things that might impact people or sand dunes, I guess, <laughs> because I'm mostly focused on sand dunes. Did you know you wanted to sort of continue in academia even when you were doing your undergraduate degree already? I think it was, well, even before then, uh, I always sort of saw myself staying in university or like learning. So in school, I wanted to learn new topics. So university, I was like, oh, yeah, I really love this. I really want to continue. And uh, I think also it helps, well, because you, Andreas, having you as a supervisor really pushes me. Oh, yeah, I think I, I would like to do that one day to be a mentor to like a fellow uh, student at some point. Yeah, because you do learn a lot and there's different skills involved because you have to, well, like here, public speaking, you need to be able to describe your research in ways that the general public can understand, but also just teaching. So you're teaching your students. Also writing your papers so that people know about research. There's a lot of skills involved, which I think that I was always attracted to. You then started your PhD at King's on a quite a different topic, uh, moving away from Earth, I suppose, and climate change in some ways to a different planet again. Can you tell us a bit about the project you're working on now? So I'm looking into sand ripples, which are like waves that you might see on sand dunes or like on the beach, you might see like these some waves of sand. So they're called sand ripples. So I'm interested in finding the wind direction from those sand ripple patterns because the sand ripples are form formed following the wind direction. And on Mars, we don't have a meteorological station, which means that we don't really have a great understanding of like the sand transport conditions or just the wind regime on Mars. So using sun ripples as an indicator will help us to understand better the wind environment on Mars. Yes, yeah, so I'm mostly focused on the north region, north polar region of Mars, 
because there's most of the dungeons are there, 75% of them, and they're in plains. It's fairly flat land, which sort of helps in um, understanding that there's less interaction with other features. For example, if you were looking to a crater, there's the crater morphology, which might affect the wind direction, whereas in the plains, it's a bit more straightforward. So that's why I'm focusing on the sand dunes on the North Polar region. How are you going to do that? Okay. How does that work? So I mentioned previously the Harris images. So once again, I'll be using those images because the resolution is, is quite incredible. You can really see small features like sun ripples because it's 0.25 centimeter per pixel, which is incredible compared to satellite imagery that you might have on Earth. It's even better over there. So be, I've collected about 50 study sites on Mars where I've seen sun ripples on the Barkin dunes. I decided to use Barkin dunes because they form in one wind regime, which is, makes it easier to then find the, how the wind ripple is affected either by Barkin morphology or whether it just follows a one wind direction. So once I had all of these images or these study sites of high-res images, I'm going to use machine learning to find the different patterns because sometimes the ripple patterns are very straight, which is very straightforward. You're like, okay, they're just going this direction, but sometimes the ripple patterns are kind of wavy or sinuous, which sort of indicate that there's like something else that's going on. So it's not as straightforward. So I'm going to use machine learning to group these different patterns on top of each bark and dune. And then in the ripple patterns that are mostly straightforward, I'll try to trace them so I can really see how they're situated on the bark and dune and whether closer to the base or closer to the bedrock, if the ripples are different than on top of the dune. So that's all using satellite imagery from, you know, circling around Mars. Is that just everything you do is based on satellite imagery or are you going to be able to do some other field work or anything like that? The main focus is trying to build a model, a machine learning model, to depict or trace those crest lines, uh, ripple crest lines on Mars. But we also want to compare those ripple patterns with those on Earth. So on Earth, there's two mediums where you see sun ripples. You can see them on top of dunes, so aeolian ripples, as I've mentioned before, but also there's some underwater. Because of the currents, like water currents, they also shape sun ripples. So I sort of want to compare Mars ripples with the Earth aeolian ripples and the underwater ripples to sort of understand which process is forming the Mars ripples, because there's a huge debate. Some people are saying, oh, it's sort of like just wind-driven formation of the ripples. Some other people are saying, well, actually, it's kind of like the underwater ripples, which would mean that's more like current type of process that's forming the Mars ripples, which is quite interesting in some way that you would see this on the surface of another planet that doesn't have water. So sort of to understand the formation of the sand ripples by comparing with Earth surface sand dunes and underwater ripples. So for the underwater ripples on Earth, I'll be looking into bathymetric data. So that, again, it's all desk study. I won't be going underwater to look at ripples. But for Earth, I'll be going to Morocco. And we're going to use a drone to take some images of bark engines with ripples on top. And sort of, again, sort of seeing the, the ripple patterns on top of the dune, whether it's affected by the morphology of the dune or anything else that might happen. And then compare it with those on Mars. So you've already done some of that field work. How did that go so far? It was quite fun. Uh, it was my first time actually seeing sand dunes, you know, by the beach, actual sand dunes. And we tried two methods. One was the drone, which is very easy once you sort of figure out how to fly the drone. But then we were trying to use a, a kite. So there's this thing called CAP, Kite Aerial Photography. 
where you sort of attach a camera slightly lower down on the line of the kite and then you just walk around the kite and the camera if it's set on taking an image every one second it will take images all around the way you walk around the dune so we've tried that to get afterwards sort of a complete image of the barkin high resolution image of the barkin but with the kite method it was uh, quite problematic because when it was too windy the camera was just flying all over in every direction. So it wasn't really focused on the dune. Sometimes we just saw the sky or something to see. It was, wasn't great results. Uh, so now we're going to stick to the drones. Very straightforward, just flies the same height the whole way and it's pretty predictable what we'll get from uh, the drone images. So why not satellite imagery? So as I sort of mentioned is satellite imagery on Earth is not as high resolution than for example on Mars. So there is, you can't see the sun ripples in satellite imagery. From Earth. So that's why you do need to take aerial photography, either as a drone or something else that's like closer to the dune. So you can see the ripples. It's mostly because the ripples on Earth, they're quite small. They're about 10 centimeter uh, in spacing, so between each crest line. Whereas on Mars, the ones I'm looking at, they're quite big. They're like up to a meter in spacing and also much taller. That's why on Mars, you can really see them, the large ripples, whereas on Earth, you do need to take drone imagery of the smaller impact ripples. So you've been in doing your PhD for what about a year now. Have you got any sort of uh, preliminary findings or you know things that you've tried out so far? Is there anything you can already say or think about? So at the start, it's mostly even from just me visually looking at the high-res images, I could see that the patterns they're quite different on the bark engine. Some regions you can really see just very straight long ripples, whereas in other regions, there's even ripples on the slip face. So this is the, the steepest slope of the Barkin, which on Earth, you don't have ripples. So that's quite fascinating that that's happening on Mars. We're still building the, the model, the machine learning model. So we've tried a few things, still like testing, so we don't have like great results just yet, but hopefully soon. And uh, are you going to present some of your work to the wider audience, wider world? So I'm going to the American Geophysical Union. AGU conference later in December. So I'll be presenting sort of the framework for my machine learning model and also like just the general research topic, which is the sand ripples on Mars. Because if some other researchers in our community have applied machine learning, it's mostly, for example, detecting the bigger dunes themselves compared to other features on Mars. Not so much about detecting features within the sand, so like the sand ripples among the dune, which is I guess some of the problems that we have for now is like trying to really detect the sand ripples on the surface of the sand dune. You're doing all this work now looking at sand dunes on Mars. When you were doing your master's work on uh, sort of climate change, you, you were saying earlier that you're quite uh, keen on, on that sort of topic because of its sort of societal impacts and, and sort of overall sort of concerns. Is there anything that we might be able to learn from your work on Mars that could be relating back to Earth? I feel like Mars is sort of like an experiment. We just tweaked a few different parameters. Uh, so by studying Mars, you sort of understand better what's happening on Earth. Because visit experiment, usually tried to you sort of tune your model or experiment slightly differently. And you sort of said, okay, so we have this type of pattern or the type of sand dune moving this way. On Mars, we have something similar, but the environment is quite different. So we're sort of trying to understand where are the similarities and differences between those two planets. 
which is in my work mostly useful for understanding the surface processes on Mars. So like the wind regime, how does that work? Which in some way for all the people really into habitation of like Mars, it would be useful to know where the wind is going on Mars uh, if we were to settle there at some point. Should be tweeting with Elon Musk. Yeah, maybe it should. <laughs> I guess I'm I'm now just sort of we're nearing the end of the conversation, uh, maybe of interest to people listening in. How did you find transitioning from a master's degree program into a, a PhD project? What what sort of things would you perhaps say to current master's students who are pondering whether or not to do a PhD? You know, what's what are the sort of things that I might want to think about if if they're considering that? I'd say writing the dissertation, most master's students have to write a dissertation, is a sort of a good indication of what a PhD would be. Because it's sort of, you have, you're your own boss, you have to figure out how to do your research. You do have your supervisor to help you, but you have to push yourself to do all this kind of research or different tasks. So you do have to be pretty good at managing your time, because you don't want to spend too much time on a task that's actually not that relevant for the overall research topic. But also it's an opportunity outside the PhD to, to learn different skills, as I mentioned before, because you, have, you can take some classes on like how to talk about your research in a way that most people will understand. Or you can sort of practice writing because you do have to publish papers. Whereas the master is a sort of, I guess, uh, module led. So you have a module and then you have to write an essay or you have to do some examination. So there's a lot of deadlines, whereas PhD is quite long. You do have to set yourself some, I'll say, smaller deadlines within a PhD to be sure to be on track. So, for example, there's an upgrade where you have to write this big report, sort of explaining what is your research topic before moving on to the rest of your PhD. So it's the time scales are quite different. Uh, master is quite intense, short. You have to do all these essays following a deadline, whereas a PhD is quite long. So you really have to plan ahead over the next few years what you want to do and make sure you keep yourself on track. So you'd say you'd have to be very self-driven in order to pursue a PhD? Yes, very self-driven because most of the time you'd be the expert at some point of your research topic. So you do have to rely on yourself and your supervisor to keep going. Because sometimes I feel like in a master's, you could always ask your fellow classmates, hey, how are you doing this? Or how do you write this essay? Whereas in a PhD, you can get some help from others, but it's mostly you have to learn by yourself, most of it, how to do your own research or like learn a new software. You can analyze the data. So it's a lot of self-motivation. Okay, that was a lovely conversation to have with you, Lucy, to give us an update on your academic journey so far. Thanks for having a chat with me. Well, thank you for having me. It was great. You've been listening to the Well We Got This In Conversation podcast with Lucy Delaville and Andreas Bass. You can find out more about Lucy's research on the King's Geography website. You can also find out about the article on wind patterns and sand dunes at Nature Climate Change. This episode was brought to you by the School of Global Affairs. It was produced by Julia Stempowska and edited by Rachel Wall. You have been listening to The World We Got This podcast. This episode was produced by the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London and edited by Rachel Wall. To find out more about the research at King's on this and other global challenges, please visit our website, kcl.ac.uk. Please review, subscribe and share the podcast so you don't miss an episode and it's easier for others to find out about the series. 